The House passes weed through the MORE Act, but will we see marijuana legalized at the federal level anytime soon? Vincent Sawaski from Harris Brickin joins us. I'm Lawrence Cleddy, and this is Legal Talk Today. Hello, listeners. Welcome back. As you may have heard from the news, the U.S. House of Representatives passed the MORE Act. And of course, that's short for Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. But before anybody gets too excited, marijuana is not legal at the federal level. And our guest today, Mr. Vincent Slawaski from Harris Brickett, is going to break it all down for us. He joins us now. Welcome to the show, Vincent. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I think the the logical place to start here, uh, Vincent, is uh, just with a brief history of legalizations. You know, we've been following this story off and on. You know, the states, they start to legalize. And then we uh, talked a little bit about uh, the Cole memo. We covered some of the recent elections. But now we're here. Now there's a uh, bill that has gone through the House of Representatives and passed. And so why don't you give us the history of these legalizations, kind of get us up to the path where we are today? Sure. So it's it's kind of a long story in a long timeline. If you look way, way, way back, even before the country was formally founded, cannabis was legal in the U.S. In fact, people were required to do things like grow hemp when there were just colonies here in the U.S. And it kind of was like that for three, four hundred years until the early 1910s and 20s when various states started to legislate against the use and possession of marijuana. And it's well documented that most of that was done for racist and xenophobic reasons against Hispanic people and Black and Latino migrant workers. You know, that was the sort of status quo at the state level until the 1930s when you had the first federal action, something called the Marijuana Tax Act, which effectively started a regime of federal prohibition. And then you move into sort of the modern day prohibition under the Federal Controlled Substances Act, 1970, under the Nixon regime, which is still kind of the law of the land, at least federally today. As far as states starting to push against that, it happened almost immediately in certain places where I'm talking to you from here in Oregon. We began to decriminalize possession of small amounts of marijuana going back to 1973. States did tiny little progressive things around the edges like that. It wasn't until 1996 when California had the first law allowing for medical use of marijuana in a state. And other states started to pile in until you saw the first states with adult use marijuana legalization and licensing programs that started with Colorado and Washington in 2014. And then you fast forward to today, where all of a sudden you've got all but two or three states that have changed their laws in some ways to permit some use of cannabis for medical purposes. And you've got 15 now, as of the November elections, that have removed state prohibitions on adult use. So that's kind of where we're at. Most states are doing something different than is contemplated by federal law. And there are a lot of strange tensions between state and federal law. And there's a lot of non-enforcement of federal law or uneven enforcement of federal law. And that kind of leads us up to the MORE Act, if you want to talk more specifically about that. Yeah, let's definitely get into that. And of course, one more time, the MORE Act is short for Marijuana Opportunity Reinvestment and Expungement Act. And so in addition to trying to decriminalize marijuana sale, growth, production, and use at the federal level, there's some other features there. So can you kind of walk us through some of the features associated with the MORE Act? Yeah, I'll give you kind of a high level. You know, it's not a really long act. It's kind of a, and that was, some people criticized it for that, including a lot of the people who voted against it. They said, we should we should treat this more fulsomely, and this is too short, and it's not well thought out. 
I don't agree with that, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you some of the high level features right now. The first is obviously what you said. It removes marijuana and THC, which is separately scheduled from the federal controlled substances act in legal terms. We say it deschedules marijuana entirely. So it's not controlled in any sense. It'll be treated federally more like alcohol, right? It'll be up to states to deal with any sort of restrictions or prohibitions on the use or things like that. Um, it also taxes sales of marijuana at 5%, which is kind of interesting. And it uses that revenue to invest in grant programs with a heavy focus on social equity. It also has a permitting requirement for anybody engaged in a cannabis enterprise that wasn't well covered or publicized, but it does require people to get a federal permit. I don't think it's going to be anything very difficult to achieve or a, sort of a robust type of clearance like we see with state licensing, but you are required to register in a sense. It allows cannabis business access to federal lending programs, specifically the Small Business Administration lending programs and other programs through the SBA, which will be huge. Um, we saw that come up a lot lately with CARES Act and coronavirus relief and cannabis businesses being ineligible and having them be ineligible just going back several years and historically because of the fact that cannabis has been a controlled substance. It's always been the SBA's position that we won't treat them like normal businesses. We won't lend to them. We can't. So it changes that. One of the very biggest things it does is requires expungement of many cannabis-related convictions. So this is an interesting issue. There was some misreporting on this, and I think it's because there were changes being made right up into the vote almost or in the days before the vote. But what, what happens under the act is passed is that people with nonviolent past cannabis convictions are eligible for expungement and resentencing. So it's it's not automatic in most cases. You've got to go to the court and say, hey, I was convicted. Let's look at this again. And there's a resentencing provision and hopefully it's wiped off the books. For juveniles of nonviolent convictions, it is automatically expunged. So those are just wiped with no further action necessary as a matter of law. It does other things around the edges. It amends immigration laws, which is very helpful so that no quote unquote alien to use the statutory language can be denied any benefit or protection under immigration laws related to involvement with marijuana in any sense whether it's possession of marijuana or investing in a marijuana business. Currently, the immigration laws are very difficult on non-residents, uh, more so even than residents. So that's where I would leave it. There's other stuff, but I think those are the sort of big ticket items. Well, that's a lot packed in there. And, uh, you know, there's uh, certainly certainly rich with features. So beyond that, just the, sort of the policy argument for I know there's some disagreements uh, there in Congress. And so I know that uh, Representative Barbara Lee from California and Representative Earl Blumenauer, they're, they're obviously co-sponsors of the bill. So they had a lot of other policy concerns for bringing in addition to those features that you just mentioned. But conversely, there's other people that don't like the bill so much. Representative Debbie Lasko from Arizona is one example. And so can you give us the pros and cons for the kind of policy concerns around this bill? You kind of got into it a little bit, but you know, tell us the pros and cons. Yeah, sure. I'll start with the pros. We're actually pretty well tied in with Blumenauer's office here in Portland, Oregon. And I was on a call with him last month, kind of getting ready for the vote here. And the thing they're emphasizing, and I think it's right, is putting an end to the enormous waste of resources and the devastating social impact of the failed war on drugs. It's been going 50 years. And what do we have? From it. We have a prison industrial complex that's been exacerbated by the way marijuana is treated under federal law. We have three generations of black and brown people being disenfranchised and imprisoned. 
because of the status of marijuana under federal law. And we have them being policed and convicted at disproportionate rates to other people of other races, even in the same cities and states. So I think a lot of it was social equity. A lot of it was failed policy. And then beyond that, it's just clearing up a really unworkable conflict between state and federal law, which in the beginning, maybe in, you know, in the 90s, and then even when medical marijuana started to come online, and then even more recently when a few state programs came online, yeah, there was some conflict there. But now there's just massive conflict. Like I said, all but two or three states have some version of medical marijuana now, and none of it can be really reconciled with the way marijuana is treated under the Federal Controlled Substances Act. So you can't really have legal regimes that don't make any sense. And you can have two legal regimes where businesses aren't allowed to be treated like other businesses federally, even though they are to some extent under the state level. So I think I think it was just a general kind of let's get this right. Nobody wants this terrible regime to continue and let's fix it. As for the cons or the opposition, you mentioned Debbie Lesko. She was one of the more vocal ones um, and there were plenty. One thing that she specifically highlighted is the act doesn't do anything to prevent use by children. She talked about it doesn't have adequate warning labels for health risks. She talks about we don't know a lot about the impact of marijuana on the brain, the areas responsible for memory and learning. So I guess they would have liked to see a more robust regime as to kids and children. Again, we don't really have anything like that at the federal level for alcohol. So it's mostly left to the states. I think what Congress is trying to do here is same thing with marijuana. Let's leave it more to the states. But um, people like W. Lasco wanted to see a heavier hand federally with respect to policy and children. More generally than that, many House Republicans just said provisions in the Moore Act are just too lenient, right? We oppose decriminalization. And then just kind of leaving it at that, which is kind of weak, in my opinion. And then you had other people saying, well, it seems okay, maybe, but we should really be focused on these deadly and devastating health impacts of the coronavirus and all the related economic fallout. We don't really have time. Why are we focusing on marijuana? We can't get a stimulus bill through those type of arguments. And ultimately, it's it's kind of interesting to note that you had 34 Republicans absent from the vote and were kind of silent, right? They didn't specifically come out and say, you know, we're against the more act and they didn't say anything about it. They just didn't show up and vote. So you have one in six people in that party kind of just ignoring the whole thing and sticking their head in the sand entirely. And then the last sort of criticism is not people who are necessarily opposed to the bill, but people who said it didn't go far enough. Some people said this just doesn't go far enough on social equity. And some of those concerns should be thought about and addressed. For example, in the very, very late drafting leading up to the vote, there was kind of a catch-all provision stuck in there that nobody's been talking about, uh, at least that I've heard. And it says that with respect to the permitting I talked about earlier, if somebody, and I'm going to read you a quote here, if somebody is by reason of previous or current legal proceedings involved in a felony conviction of any other provision of federal or state criminal laws relating to cannabis, and they're not likely to maintain operations in compliance with this chapter, then they can be denied a permit. To me, that's awfully vague and awfully problematic, and there needs to be some more thought and attention to that. You don't want the permitting authority to be able to look at people and say, oh, they were you know, convicted for a marijuana conviction 10 years ago, and we don't think that they can maintain operations in compliance with this chapter. That seems to really cut against all of the other expungement and decrim-related retroactive stuff in the act. So 
I, you know, I think there's some legit criticism that it didn't go far enough or there's some problematic language in the bill, the way it's been implemented. Well, we're running out of time and I want to get to a couple more questions, but I do have a quick follow-up sort of on that disproportionate impact on minority communities. And so I often see this in the news, I'll often like read an article and they'll talk about that disproportionate impact. But what a lot of times, at least the sources that I've seen uh, recently this year, they don't really give a breakdown on that. And so are, when you say disproportionate impact on minority communities, are you talking about violent offenses associated with marijuana? Or are you talking about possession offenses based on uh, marijuana? I'm talking about both, and there's some great statistics on it, and you can find them at places like the ACLU or Drug Policy Alliance, or even on right-leaning organizations like Republicans Against Marijuana Prohibition. But I think it's really important to note that most arrests uh, for marijuana are made actually at the state level, under state laws, and most arrests are made for simple possession of cannabis. And a high percentage of all arrests, again, are made against minorities as compared to Caucasian. So the MORE Act is going to change federal law, but what people don't really understand is it's not going to change state laws, right? States are still free to have these kind of retrograde laws on their books with respect to marijuana possession or sale, and a lot of them still do. Even ones that have legalized medical marijuana still say, unless you, if you don't have a medical card, you can be ticketed or you can be jailed or whatever, and their laws are almost kind of like many Controlled Substances Act. So all of those things are going to have to change too. And the federal law doesn't necessarily preempt those things. If the MORE Act passes tomorrow, you could still be arrested walking around with a gram of cannabis in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, and nothing about the changed federal law would help you there. Yeah, that's the clarification I was looking for because, you know, to me, it seems like, you know, if the DEA is going after you, you're probably not just the average person on the street out there with uh, possession, possible charges. They're going after some bigger fish there. Correct. All right. So next question for you, Vince, I just got a couple more here. You know, in terms of remaining steps for marijuana to become legal at the federal level, I understand it'll have to go back to the Senate. There'll probably have to be some type of uh, action at the FDA, but kind of walk us through those next logical steps. Yeah, you've got it right. So in order for it to become law, like any bill anywhere, it's got to be taken up in the Senate. And the Senate version of the MORE Act is actually sponsored by outgoing Senator and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. But it's unlikely that that thing will ever get to the floor or see a vote unless Democrats succeed in these Georgia runoffs and get a majority in the Senate. And then, you know, they have to have exactly zero defections in order for something to become law, or they've got to get some Republicans on their side. So a lot of prognosticators are saying, you know, it's good that the more act passed in the House, but don't expect anything to change anytime soon. I'm not so sure. I do think it's key to watch those Georgia runoffs in January. Aside from that, you know, these bills change, they tend to change a lot as they come up for vote and they're reconciled. The Senate might move some things around. They might add provisions that we don't see in the House bill. They might remove provisions that we do see in the House bill. We are likely to need further changes of other regulatory agencies um, if the MORE Act passes similarly to what we see right now, for instance, under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, which is promulgated or overseen by the FDA. There are still going to be problems with respect to uh, adding cannabis products to foods and beverages um, that still would not be legal under the MORE Act as passed. We'd need amendments to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, or we would need the FDA to start writing different rules or reading their act differently given the changes under the MORE Act. So there's stuff that needs to be undertaken elsewhere in other areas of federal law. And 
the more act just doesn't do all that. Like I said, it's a pretty skinny bill in a certain sense. And just last question for you, you mentioned that might be a couple of days before it gets back to the Senate. What's the realistic timeline there? Uh, I don't think it's going to be taken up by the Senate at all this session. I think there's no chance of it just because the Democrats do not have a majority in the Senate right now. I think that the Democrats have to win both runoff races in Georgia in order to get a lot of their legislation, Mm -hmm. including the Moore Act, down to a floor vote in the upper chamber. And that's all the time we have, Vincent. So thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please subscribe directly to the show in your favorite podcasting app. It's always good for the show. We'll cite and make available our sources for this episode on our website, LegalTalkNetwork.com, so you can read about those for yourself. And also a big thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and the LTN crew for making us sound so groovy. This has been Legal Talk Today. I'm Lawrence Coletti. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) 